It's 80 years since Cecil B. DeMille's Jesus picture, The King of Kings, first ventured onto the big screen. DeMille's name may be synonymous with the biblical epic, but he only ventured into the New Testament territory this one time. He had originally planned to make a film about Noah and the Flood, but once he heard about Michael Curtis's similarly themed film, Noah's Ark, he decided to stop skirting around the Bible's most important story and make a film about the life of Jesus. Of course, it certainly wasn't the first silent film about Jesus. Indeed, it wasn't even the last, but it is widely held as being the best early film about Jesus Christ, as well as being one of the most important of all silent films. Being such an early film, it has been hugely influential. It was 34 years until Hollywood produced another Jesus film, and when it did, it kept almost the same title, calling itself King of Kings. It also included a visual tribute to DeMille's film. On the road to Golgotha, we see the end of the cross drag along the paving slabs in similar fashion. Its influence has continued through to the modern day. Whether it's the inclusion of a crow on the cross of a bad thief in Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, or the modern day ending which reappears in Roger Young's Jesus TV series, there's no doubt about this film's significance. However, that significance is not just down to the way it has influenced other Jesus films, but also down to its large audience. In his 1959 autobiography, DeMille claimed that at least 800 million people had seen the film up to that point, and that, quote, more people have been told the story of Jesus of Nazareth through the King of Kings than through any other single work, except the Bible itself, unquote. Given that the world's population was only 3 billion in 1959, that's some claim. It's no surprise that DeMille was pleased about this statistic. The film's opening credits discuss the Great Commission in the hope that the film would play a, a reverent part in fulfilling that great command. In contrast to many of DeMille's films, this one is notable for its restraint. There are of course a few over-the-top moments, especially at the start of the film. There a sexy Mary Magdalene rides away in a chariot pulled by zebras in order to reclaim Judas, her lover, from amongst Jesus' disciples. But once Jesus has been introduced, things are toned down a bit, and the film becomes more reverent. It's actually this reverence which is often cited as one of the film's weak points. The very first shot of Jesus shows him with a halo. The concluding scenes show the resurrected Jesus glowing mysteriously. In between, Jesus is nearly always shown bathed in light, even if the background is dark, as in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is exaggerated by Jesus frequently appearing distant and remote. It's often been said that at age 52, H.P. Warner was too old to play Jesus. It's the more naturalistic moments of DeMille's film that are the best. For example, when a little girl hears of Jesus' ability to mend damaged legs, she brings him her doll. Assuring a miracle, he opts instead of fixing it using a piece of reed. By today's standards, it seems perhaps a little twee, but this is this Jesus' most appealing moment. One of the most unusual features about this film is the place in Jesus' ministry where it begins. Of the four canonical Gospels, two start just before Jesus is born, and two start at the beginning of his ministry. Films about the life of Jesus have tended to fall into one of three categories. 
Number one, those that start with the nativity. Number two, those that begin at the onset of Jesus' ministry. Or, number three, those which, like the very earliest Jesus films, simply cover the events of his passion. In contrast, Jeannie McPherson's screenplay commences a good way through Jesus' ministry, but a while before the events of Holy Week. Its Jesus is already established as a popular figure with a band of disciples and a reputation for signs and wonders, as indicated by those who crowd out the places where he teaches in hope of a miracle. But there are still a few more miracles to be performed before it's time for his final visit to Jerusalem. The number of those events depicted actually depends on the version of the film that one watches. Up until 2004, most people were only aware of the shorter version of the film. Although that version went on to become the standard version, it was not originally released until 1928. The version that premiered in 1927 was actually just over two and a half hours long, 43 minutes longer than the re-release. It included both some extra scenes, such as Judas' failure to exercise a boy who Jesus then heals, Jesus paying his tax by getting Peter to catch a fish with a coin in his mouth, and the subsequent calling of Matthew. The 1928 release also reordered some of the material, as well as trimming down many of the scenes it retained, and altering others. Some of these changes are surprising. Both versions feature a member of Caiaphas' entourage bribing members of the crowd to shout for Barabbas. But whereas in the later version one of them suggests that this might be against the Jewish law, in the earlier version he refuses more forthrightly. You cannot bribe me, a Jew, to cry for the blood of an innocent brother. It's hard to understand exactly why this change was made. In both versions the line mitigates to some degree against charges of anti-Semitism. It not only shows that many of the Jewish people in Jesus' time were not baying for his blood, but also that there were those who were neither particularly for or particularly against Jesus. But the latter version's dialogue seems weaker in this regard. In addition to these changes, the opening scenes are shown in colour, a technique that the, the later release saved until the resurrection. Thankfully, both versions are now available in a single Criterion Collection release, which also features a generally impressive new musical accompaniment by Donald Sozin. Those unfamiliar with silent films will find the exaggerated acting style and the excessive eyeliner strange, even unintentionally comical, but this is just how movies were made in this age. All that quickly changed, however, with the introduction of talking pictures, just a few months after the release of The King of Kings, the movie industry underwent an audio revolution, with studios quickly jumping on the bandwagon by attempting to add sound to films that were originally intended as silence. Ironically, it's perhaps because the 1928 re-release didn't attempt to introduce sound into this film that it is remembered as the last classic of the silent era, rather than just some novelty piece from the inception of talking pictures. That's all for this month. Next month I'll be looking at Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. Thanks for listening.